Let us pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, sovereign King over all creation, You have planned all things from beginning to end. The world and all that happens in it is under Your continual care and direction. The events of history unfold according to Your eternal decree. Even the hearts of earthly kings are in Your hand to direct as You will. O Lord, You are also sovereign in our salvation. So our salvation is by grace from beginning to end. You have chosen us freely to be in Christ Jesus from before the world began. You sent Your Son, the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world that He might live a life of perfect obedience, that He might lay down His life for His sheep, that He might give Himself in sacrificial law for His bride, that He might offer Himself as a sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous, And indeed, we know Your promise, O Lord, that He loses none whom You have given to Him. And now, O gracious God, Your sovereign Spirit, poured out upon Your church through Your Son, works in us to make us Your willing servants in the day of battle. Your Spirit works in us faith and grants to us repentance and enables us to persevere in obedience. O triune God, We are gathered here today to give You praise and thanks and to receive Your gifts. We pray, O Lord, that You would rise up to scatter the enemies of Your people, that You would defend us and bless us, that You would be enthroned upon our praises. We ask that You would fill this place with the knowledge of Your glory, that we may worship You in holiness and with reverent joy, knowing that You alone are beautiful, You alone are God. You are our Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer. This is our prayer. Amen. Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You that He is Your Word, Your eternal Word, by which You have spoken and revealed Yourself in flesh. And we thank You that You are in Him as He speaks to us, and that by Him we see You. We pray that you would give us the grace to understand more and more of this great gospel that you've entrusted to us, that we would preach it and live it faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. The doctrine of the Trinity is woven into our worship every Sunday. I didn't take time to go through a bulletin and count up the number of times the Trinity is referred to. But from beginning to end, our worship is saturated with the doctrine of the Trinity. We're gathered and called into God's presence in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus to the Father. We're blessed at the end of the service in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We confess the faith every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, both of which are Trinitarian creeds. We even have the name Trinity in the name of our church. Our worship and our life as a church is saturated with references to the Trinity, to the doctrine of the Trinity, to the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But pervasive as it is in the life of this church and in the life of the church in general, The Trinity can be a bewildering thing to contemplate. The doctrine of the Trinity can be a bewildering thing to try to get a handle on. 
we might think, well, Father, Son, and Spirit are three and one in the same way that three friends are three and yet are all human. But the church has said, no, that's not how God is three and one. That would be tritheism, three different gods all sharing a single nature. That's not what the church has confessed. Perhaps we can say that God is three in one in the sense that I can take on different roles. In fact, I'm living different roles all the time. I am a son to my father. I am a father to my children. I am a, an employee or employer. I'm playing different roles. And perhaps God is father, son, and spirit in that sense. He plays the role of father and he plays the role of the son. He takes on different personas at different times. But the church has said no. That's not the way it is either. That's the heresy known as modalism. That you have only one God, one person in God that expresses himself in three different modes. The church has rejected those options, but the church's explanations, positive explanations, seem to just add to the bewilderment. How can it be that God is both three and one, but not in either of the senses that I've just described? The church's explanations sometimes don't seem very illuminating. We have discussions of person, but what does person mean? We have discussions of nature or substance or being, but what do those words mean? How does that illuminate anything? And we're sometimes left in the position of Augustine, who at certain points in his treatise on the Trinity kind of threw up his hands and said, we have to say something, and so we shall say person, even though we aren't quite sure what we mean when we say that. We'll use the word that the church has chosen and describe the three as three persons, even though we can't explain exactly what we mean. It's a placeholder, a term that we must use because we must talk about God. We must talk about one God, and we must talk about three in that one God. But exactly how we talk about it is, uh, Augustine says at certain points, is just uh, a matter of decision. We decide to use these terms. And then there's the question of what, what difference it all makes. We know it must make a huge difference. The doctrine of the Trinity is what distinguishes the Christian church and the Christian theology, Christian doctrine, from other forms of monotheism. Other religions confess that there is only one God. Judaism does. Islam does. There is only one God. But they don't confess a triune God. They don't confess that that one God is Father Son and Spirit, eternally three as well as eternally one. We know that it's important. It distinguishes us from all the other religions of the world. And yet exactly what practical difference does it make? And we're tempted here to throw up our hands again and say we have to confess it. We don't know what it means. It doesn't seem to make any practical difference in our lives. And yet we must confess it because we believe that's what the Bible teaches and that's what the church has always confessed. We have to say it, but it doesn't really affect the way we live. I want to suggest some ways that the doctrine of the Trinity and the Bible's teaching about the Trinity is practical. Some of the ways, not all of them. And I want to do it by looking at our gospel reading this morning, John 17, and particularly by picking up a couple of the phrases that Jesus uses in that prayer to describe his relationship with his Father. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he says in verse 20, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, the twelve among whom he's ministering, 
but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. He repeats that later on, verse 23, I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. The Father indwells the Son, and the Son, at the same time that He's indwelt by the Father, indwells the Father. This is a strange way of talking. This doesn't seem to clarify much. This doesn't seem to make any progress. How can this happen? How can this be true? If we're inside something, then that something that we are inside can't be inside us at the same time. We are inside the church. It would be weird to think that we are simultaneously have the church inside us. I can be inside a box if it's big enough. I can maybe eat the box and make the box inside me, but I can't be in the box and have the box in me at the same time. That doesn't seem to make any sense. It's a strange way of talking, but that's the way that Jesus talks about his relationship with his Father. He is the dwelling place for his Father, and his Father is simultaneously the dwelling place for Jesus. And this is the way that they are one, by the Father dwelling in the Son and the Son dwelling in the Father. Okay, so it's a mystery. God is mysterious. So maybe Jesus is just adding to the mystery. This is an impossible thing. It doesn't apply to anything else except God. And Jesus says it, so we have to confess that it's true. But it doesn't actually make any practical difference. We just chalk it up to God's mysteriousness. It's a God thing for the Father to be in the Son and the Son to be in the Father. But that's not what Jesus says. In fact, this description of his relationship with his Father is just a kind of toss-off line. It's, it's, it's not a that's, that's a... that's a misstatement. It's not really a toss-off line. But it's not really the main point, the main thrust of Jesus' prayer. Jesus is not praying that the Father would be in him and that he would be in the Father. He's saying that is true already, and it's true eternally. What he's praying for is his disciples. And he's praying that his disciples like Jesus himself, would also be in the Father. And that the disciples, like the Father, would be in the Son. That's the, that's the point of the prayer. That they may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be in us. The Father makes room in himself for the Son to dwell in. The Son makes room in himself for the Father to dwell in. And Jesus is praying to his Father that together the Father and the Son would make room in themselves for us the disciples of Jesus. God opens up room in his own life to include us. That's what Jesus is praying for. It's not exclusively a God thing. It's about us and our relationship with the triune God. And then as Jesus goes on, he's not only asking that we have room in God, he prays that we that God would uh, open up room in us, in the Father and the Son for us, But he also prays that he would dwell in the disciples. I in them, thou in me, verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity. God opens up room in himself for us to dwell in. And Jesus is also praying that God would open up room in us for him to dwell in. And when he comes to dwell in us, then the Father comes to dwell in us. This is even stranger God is infinite. God is gigantic. God is huge. Of course He has room 
in Himself for us, for everything. But that God would make room for Himself in us, that's a miracle. God has taken up residence. That's what Jesus is praying for, that God would take up residence in us, among us, in the disciples of Jesus. So it's not just that the Father is in the Son at the same time the Son is in the Father. It's also true that Father and Son are in us at the same time that we are in them. This is what Paul says also in Colossians, the passage we read earlier this morning. The mystery that is revealed in Christ is the mystery withheld from all the previous ages. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God made flesh, by His Spirit comes to dwell in you and among you within the church and in each believer. But as Paul goes on in that same passage, he also talks about being in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, and for those who are in Christ. God dwells in us, and at the same time we dwell in God. But that's not the end of what Jesus prays for. Jesus not only prays that He would dwell in us and the Father by dwelling in Jesus would also dwell in us, but He also prays that we, His disciples, would be one. And not just one in some kind of generic sense, some kind of general way, but one in the same way that the Father and the Son are one. That they may be one, verse 21 says, even as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they may be in us. Then verse 23, I in them, Thou in Me, that they may be perfected in unity. The world might know that Thou didst send Me, and didst love them even as Thou didst love Me. It's not only that God has made a place for Himself in us, and have made a place for us in Himself, He's also praying that the unity that we have together would be like the unity of God's own triune life. How is the Father unified with the Son? How is the Son one with the Father? By their mutual indwelling in one another. Because the Father dwells in the Son and the Son dwells in the Father. That's how they're one. And Jesus says, and I want you to be the same way. You, my disciples. I want you to dwell in each other. And open up space in yourself for others to dwell in you. And when you do that, your life together becomes an image of divine life. It becomes an image of the very life of the Father and the Son through the Spirit. This doesn't seem to be helping with my original questions. We kind of come up against some existential questions here, something that is practical. But how does that help? I'm just multiplying mysteries. Jesus is just multiplying mysteries. Well, that would be a wrong implication to draw. Rather, a wrong inference to draw from what I've just said. Because what Jesus says is certainly mysterious and certainly mystical. But it is also deeply practical in a variety of ways and contexts. For John, at least, this reality about God that the Father dwells in the Son and the Son dwells in the Father is of the essence of the Gospel. If this is not true of God, then we don't have eternal life. The way John presents the Gospel, the Father must be in the Son 
or we don't know God and therefore don't have eternal life. Early on in his gospel, John quotes from the passage we read from Exodus. No man has seen God at any time. Remember, Moses sees only the back of God as God passes by. He can't see God face to face. And John begins his gospel by saying, no man has seen God at any time. But John is not simply talking, he's not mainly talking about God's invisibility. He's talking about the history of redemption. We could paraphrase to say, at one time no one had seen God, but the Word has been made flesh and dwelt among us, and Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, has revealed the Father to us. That's how the prologue to John's Gospel goes on. You want to see God. You have to see God, according to John. If you don't see God, you don't know God. If you don't know God, you don't have eternal life. That's the logic of John's Gospel. Eternal life is to know the Father and the Son. And to know the Father and the Son, you have to see them. But how can we see the God whom no one has ever seen? Because He's become flesh and dwelt among us. And how can we know that the one who becomes flesh and dwells among us is actually revealing to us the nature of God? That comes up in John 14. Show us the Father, Philip says to Jesus. And Jesus' reply is, Have I been so long with you, and you still don't know me? Don't you know that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. How can we be sure that Jesus Christ reveals to us the nature of the eternal God? Well, because He's God. But also, John says, because the Father dwells in Him. And when the Son becomes flesh and dwells among us, the Father is showing Himself through the Son. The Son is transparent, as it were, to the Father. You want to know what God is like. You want want to know what kind of character God has. That's what the Gospel is all about. That's what the story of Jesus is all about. You want to know what God is like. God is a God who has compassion on sinners. God is a God who is willing to go to a cross to save sinners. God is a God who raises the dead. God is a God who fights with oppressors, who rebukes oppressive Pharisees, who battles with the authorities in Israel. That's what God is like. God is not the stern authoritarian in the sky looking for an opportunity to wrap you on the knuckles. God is not a petty God. God is like Jesus because Jesus is God and because the Father dwells in the Son who has become flesh. Without that truth, according to John, we don't know God. If Jesus is some creature, some secondary being, perhaps he got it a little bit wrong. Perhaps he's not really revealing God as he actually is. Perhaps behind Jesus... There's this, there is this really stern, nasty, petty God. John says no. The New Testament says no. The Bible says no. Jesus reveals the Father because the Father is in the Son when the Son comes to reveal Him. Do you not know who I am? Jesus says to Philip. Don't you know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Without that truth... There is no gospel, John says. But it's not just the gospel that's at stake here, but it's also the practical way that we live together. Remember the logic of Jesus' prayer in John 17. 
Jesus begins by talking about the unity of the Father and the Son. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. That's how they are one. Because Jesus has become flesh, the Word has become flesh. Because He is glorified on the cross and in His resurrection. He's made room for us in God. And He's opened up room in us for God to dwell in us. So that we get incorporated into that fellowship that is the eternal fellowship of the Father and the Son. And not only that, but because the Son has become flesh and because of His glorification on the cross and in His resurrection, because the outpouring of the Spirit, God has opened up space in each of us for one another so that we can live in unity and love with one another in a way that reflects the unity and love that is the eternal life of God. Again, this sounds mystical, but it couldn't be more practical. It couldn't be more challenging. We are all of us preoccupied with our own projects. We are all of us preoccupied with our own schedules, with our own work. I've heard, not that I've experienced this, but I've heard that some dads, when they're preoccupied with a deadline and a schedule, ignore their children. I wouldn't know that personally, but I've heard that people do that. They're not open to letting their kids come in. The kid's, kid comes into the office. Daddy, I need help. Got a deadline. I've got my own project. I'm not open to you. I don't have room for you in my schedule. I don't have room for you in my life. We're self-enclosed. We're curved in on ourselves. But the Spirit has come from the Father and the Son to open us up to one another so that we're not just pursuing our own projects, but we're stretched out to include other people in our projects, to include other people in our lives. Part of this is simply psychological. You have a friend who's going through some kind of crisis. You make room in your heart and in your feelings, in your prayers, in your time for that person. You're doing that. You're living the divine life. Because you've made room in your heart for someone else to occupy. You've made room in your, your you know, waking hours of, uh, in the wee hours of the morning to share in the anxiety and to pray for someone else. Marriage is all about making room in all kinds of very practical ways. You have to make room in your bed once you get married. If you're used to flopping around and taking up an entire queen-size bed, you've got to stop doing that. There's another person there now. And you've got to make room in your schedule for the other person. You have your own schedule, you have your own life, you have your own projects, and then this other person comes along and wants to occupy it. And if you don't make room for it, you're headed for disaster in your marriage. If you keep that other person out, if you close the door, if you don't let them make room in you for themselves, and if you don't make room in themselves for you, your marriage is not going to work. Everything has to be opened. Your life has to be opened up. You have to be able to be willing to step into another person's life in order to make a marriage work. And when you do that, your marriage becomes an image of divine life. The Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Father. Husband indwells the wife, and the wife indwells the husband. Shared life. One life lived together with two people, but one life. 
mutually indwelling each other. But you got to make room. And by the Spirit, you were able to do that. And then you're married and your and children come along. And again, you've got to make room. You've got to make room physically. You've got to have more rooms in the house than you did before. You've got to make room in your schedule. You can't stay enclosed as newlyweds often are with just the two of you any more than a husband or a wife can stay enclosed in himself after he gets married. Okay, what we're really talking about is husbands, aren't we? Because it's the husbands that always stay enclosed in their own projects and in their own desires and in their own plans and don't open themselves up to their wives. They can't do that once they're married. And the husband and wife can't stay enclosed just with the two of them when they have kids. If you do, you're headed for disaster in your family. But when you open up your time and your schedule and your home and show hospitality to these little strangers that keep coming into your home, when you open up to them, your wife, your family becomes a little image, a little outpost of divine life in this world as each of you occupies the other's life and as you open yourself up to the occupation and the indwelling of another person. Families are headed for disaster if they don't do that. Parenting is always making room. And when it is, it's an image of divine life. What Jesus is praying for in John 17 is the church. He's praying for disciples. And that applies to our families and it applies to our marriages, but it also applies especially to communities of Christians. And communities of Christians won't reflect the unity that God is, uh, that Jesus is praying for if we individually are closed off from each other. If you don't open up your life for others to come in, practically, if you don't open up your home for others to come in, if you don't open up your conversation, if you don't open up your heart to let others occupy, to include them in your prayers, then you can't live in the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for. And you also have to be willing to, not only to open the door when somebody knocks from outside, but you also have to be willing to go and knock on somebody else's door. And that can be mighty unpleasant. But some people's lives are a mess. Some people live in all kinds of psychological and personal squalor, and we don't want to live there, so we stay away. But Jesus says, imitate God. Imitate the God who made room for himself in our world among us, in all the squalor that we are. Imitate that in the power of the Spirit, and your life becomes an image of divine life. People are pretty cleaned up in the church, comparatively. So, you know, occupying somebody else's life in the church is a little bit safer than carrying out ministry. But ministry of the church, the mission of the church, is, has the same structure to it, has the same, same logic to it. We have to be willing to welcome outsiders into our community. If we put up barriers that keep people out, we're not pursuing the unity that Jesus calls us to. But we also have to reach out beyond this community into lives that may be really ugly, and really disgusting. We have to be willing to make a home there if we're going to pursue the mission that Jesus has given to His church. And when we do that, our lives, our life as a community becomes an image of the life of the Trinity. God, dwells, God the Father dwells in God the Son. God the Father and the Son dwell in us and among us 
And God has made room in Himself for us. And the whole point of that is to create a community where that's also true. Where each of us is open to be a dwelling place for someone else. And where each of us goes to dwell in somebody else's life. That's mysterious. It seems impossible, and it's particularly impossible when we think how self-enclosed and self-centered we are. How focused we are on our own projects and our own lives, and how distant we keep everyone else. This is only possible because the Word has become flesh and dwell among us, because the Word has been glorified on the cross, because Jesus and His Father have poured out the Spirit on us so that we can be stretched out, big enough to enclose others, big enough to welcome others, so that we're encouraged, so we have the courage to step over and indwell other people. And when we do that in our homes, in our marriages, in this congregation, people will see God's life lived out before them. They'll be able to look at the way we live together and say, God is like that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you again for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has been raised up on the cross and raised up from the dead, that he's been glorified and poured out his Spirit upon us, so that you may dwell in us and among us, and that by dwelling among us, you expand us so that others can dwell in us as well. We pray that Jesus' prayer would be fulfilled in this church, that you would make us one, even as you are in the Son and the Son is in you, that we would reflect your life and the life we live together. We pray this for the sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.